Welcome to Episode 8 in Advocacy in Court. Our topic in this episode is Asking Questions in Chief to get useful information in an interesting, persuasive way. We ended the last episode with a large wall map that showed your case with its topics and the facts allocated to the topics and your prioritisation of those topics, applying the general guideline, start strong, finish strong, and put the weak stuff in the middle. From that wall map, you now need to prepare some charts for in-court use. You might well do these on A4 sheets in either portrait or landscape, but I've sometimes used something as big as three sheets of A4 side-by-side, a little bit like a scroll. Whichever way you choose to do this, um, you are doing it in order to be able to plot and mark your progress during your case, topic by topic, and noting what each witness will contribute along the way. With each of these in-court sheets, be sure to keep the items randomly assigned on the sheets and then use numbers and arrows to show the way. Do not relapse into using lists. At this point, what do you do about your actual questions? For beginners, there's often an overwhelming desire to write them out. Fine, it's a stage that we all go through. And if you've written them out or typed them out, then you can have them with you at the bar table. The problem is when you keep looking at them. Looking at your list of questions means that you are not focusing upon the answer that the witness is giving you and how each answer should guide what is the next question that you ask. When you're not listening to the answers, then the written down questions become a distraction, as well as being a crutch that will nobble your ability to grow as an advocate. So write out your questions at preparation task, but do not make those written out questions a delivery tool. On those A4 in-court charts, be sure that you've left some room where you can make a note about any item, such as an unexpected answer to which you'll need to return, either before letting a particular witness go or before closing your case. By the way, that ability to make notes is also essential to deal with judicial query as to how a particular line of evidence might be relevant or... As we noted in an earlier episode in this series, if you have a brain freeze and you're needing to find your way back into the real world of the courtroom, apart from the half glass of water 
that you can readily reach when you need it. The other aid that you'll have with you there at the bar table is your chronology, the one that you started way back when you were interviewing witnesses. You may need it to check on a detail. You may even need to add to it as the result of something said by one of your witnesses or by a witness for another party. And with all of those things done, we now turn to the method of your questioning. How you and your witness, each one of them, are going to work together to tell an interesting and persuasive story. First up, you'll find that having settled the witness in by the identifying questions of who are you, what do you do, and where do you reside or work, you're then faced with the problem of, and what is my first substantial question? This is a problem that is very easy to resolve if you have shared an agenda with the witness and with the court. This can be done by such simple questions as, Now, Jack, you and I had a conference about the evidence you're going to give. He answers yes. And during that conference, we decided that we'd break your evidence up into five items. Yes. And the first of these items is your relationship with Jill at that time. Yes. And the second item is the reasons that the two of you went in search of some water. Yes. Then the third, fourth, fifth, whatever. Then, well, Jack, coming back to your relationship with Jill, and then comes the question, such as, are you siblings? Are you friends? Are you in a relationship? You already know the answer. When you get to the end of any topic, you politely tell the court through the witness, well, thank you. We've now finished with the topic of your relationship, so let's move to the second topic, which was why you needed to go and get some water with Jill. This overt statement to the witness and the court as to the agenda of topics to be covered by you both rewards the witness, it rewards the listeners, and it rewards you. Does this because with respect to the witness, your keeping to the agenda tells them that they can continue to trust you. With respect to the listeners, you've made them a promise of the roadmap that's going to be followed and you're following it so they know what the journey is and why. With respect to yourself, it allows you to know that you're able to mark the progress that you're making as you intended to make it and it also, importantly, ensures that your ability to recall the key facets of the evidence for at least an hour or so is much enhanced. With the setting of the agenda doing the job that it should, we can now turn to a focus upon your listening skills. And I use the word listening here to encompass not just hearing what a witness says, but every aspect of how they say it, which goes to volume, pacing, 
gaps, silence, change of intonation, everything, in fact, about the way in which the information is conveyed within the courtroom. It is the totality of that communication which you must absorb, think about, and then use as the fuel for the next question that you ask. When properly listened to, there is always something in an answer which will prompt a mental process in your brain that will lead to the next incremental, logically-based question. Explicitly, each question that you ask must be very short and it must seek a short, concise, confined bit of evidence explanation from the witness. The reason for this is is that what you add to the witness's story is the skill of drawing out that which is relevant and the ability to make it clear to those in the courtroom which bits of evidence are more important than others. Of course, there are also the background questions in the decision-maker's mind and your opponent's as to whether what you're trying to elicit is relevant and admissible. But I take that as background. What we're focusing on here is your mastery of the communication that you plus the witness are making to the fact finder. Sometimes you'll find it very useful to use a piggyback method with a witness. The piggyback method is is where you very overtly take a word or a phrase, even a sentence, from the witness's last answer and feed it directly into your next question. You'll do this when you want to make sure that your witness feels that you are paying proper attention to them. But it has two other benefits. The first of these is is that your repetition of it to the witness is also a repetition to the fact finder and therefore the answer has been reinforced. As well as that, it's now embedded in your memory and you won't need to make a note about it for at least an hour if that's what you need. The reason I mention the note-taking is that so far as possible, you don't want to have your questioning stalled by your making lots of notes as you go along. You want to be controlling the flow of information. And to do that, you need to be ensuring that the flow of questions and answers is smooth and relatively uninterrupted. In examination-in-chief, the expectation is, is that you will ask questions that are open in nature, that is, that they let the witness explain. Typically, these will be questions that start with or have embedded in them words like who, what, when, where, and how. There are some forms of questions that you should try hard to avoid. 
and when, inevitably, you find that you're using them, bite your tongue, withdraw the question and start again. What sort of questions am I talking about? Well, any question that starts with any of could you, should you, would you, can you? If you think about those questions, the answer to them is yes or no. And therefore, they are poor questions. Similarly, during examination in chief, the overuse of do, did or does is poor because such questions are suggestive of a wanted answer. And that's something that you do not want when issues of how much weight is to be given to a witness's evidence come into play in closing address and in the manner in which the decision maker determines the case. In the next episode, we'll look at how even seemingly open questions can be objectionable as leading. We'll also look at a situation in examination-in-chief when leading questions are safe and your opponent has to put up with them. But until then, you might think about how you could apply what we've been chatting about in this episode to the two witnesses, Jack and Jill, if you were acting for either one of them. Have a think about it, and I'll join you again in Episode 9. Bye for now.